kind of jump into the first illustration I want to share with you. So we're looking at Philippians, and we're actually going to, uh, we're going to look at Philippians. We, we've read it today, but we're not going to study it today. We're going to study what we read in Philippians next week because we're going to look at what makes Paul's attitude happen in Philippians from, from, the, from the root issue that, it, that, uh, that we see in, in the Gospel of John. So we've read two different passages today because I, I want you to kind of, I want your, your pump to be primed for Philippians next week, but I want you to get the foundation of why what is happening in Philippians is happening. And I'll give you a kind of an analogy to help you understand why. At least it helped me. A while ago... Um, I found myself kind of migrating towards uh, brainless or mindless television. My mind is on a lot, and I'm a thinker by nature. And so I have found that when I watch TV, I often want things that cause me to not think at all. And so what this has done is for this season, it's caused me to watch a lot of, like, stupid reality television. Not like the Kardashians. That's not my bag. But I've I've been wanting to watch shows. uh, Sorry if you're a Kardashian person. Also write that on the card, and we'll contact you this week. Uh, Along with the – you might need to fast. It's a mandate. Uh, So, so I've been watching this sh- a couple of shows of people's lives who are kind of like the complete opposite of mine. And I got into this one show that, that chronicled uh, c- a couple of dramas anyways on, uh, on the logging industry in America, which I found to be kind of fascinating because, you know, it's nothing but like hard labor and machinery, which I don't really, you know, operate anymore. Uh, so this, there were several episodes I watched, but one in particular was interesting to me because it, it showed how they actually do what they do. And it kind of went piece by piece through all of the hardware that they use. And what was interesting is... You know, if you if you understand logging today, they they move, they cut down these vast swatches of land, you know, trees, and then they have machinery that moves. I'm talking two to three ton logs, two or three at a time across this vast you know swath or swatch of the earth, and so. This one piece of equipment really stood out. It was called a skyline. And this is the piece of equipment they used to, dr- after they cut the trees down, to drag them to the processing place where they're going to send them off. So to make a skyline, a few things have to happen. Uh, but simply put, it's one super long, heavy-duty steel gauge cable. And they, they, have a, uh, they, they find a tree, a very stable tree. And at first I thought they picked the biggest tree, but I learned this was not the case. They find a tree, and they use this harnessing equipment to tie this steel cable to one tree. And then they stretch that steel line, the skyline, all the way across the, the land to what looks like a, literally a tank, a huge piece of equipment. They tie it to this big pole. And then they had this little machine that they, they tie. Other steel cables kind of fall down from it. And they tie these, these cables to the logs, and then they just drag them across the stri- site. It was fascinating. And what was fascinating to me was how this one tree was able to withstand the extreme force of all that pulling and tugging. That weight is just, it's like a battleship. There's so much weight on it, right? And so the, the interesting thing for me was I thought they picked the tree because it was the biggest tree. But that's not why they picked the tree. They had learned over time to find, uh, to find proper root systems. So they were not necessarily looking at the bigness of the tree. They were trying to identify how strong they thought the root system below the ground was. And this is how they pick the tree. It's the root system, not the, the, the bigness or the girth of the tree. And that's where the strength of this, this process is. It's in the roots. That's where the job gets done. So today, we're resuming our Finding Joy in Life Circumstances series <coughs> from the book of Philippians. And what we just read about uh, in the Apostle Paul, I'll, I'll kind of, or from the Apostle Paul, I'll mention it briefly. Paul essentially says, I'm in a really bad spot. But I'm in a really bad spot that I know God is going to use for his good and for my good. Pretty powerful statement. We'll touch on this next week. 
So he's enduring a real hardship in life. He's wrongfully imprisoned because of his work for the gospel. And his, his expression, his attitude, his joy and his peace during this is a real evidence that we as God's people can have joy in the most challenging of circumstances. And so Paul's positive spirit is kind of like the part of the tree that is above the ground. And what's natural for us as humans is to say, like, I see Paul has joy in a situation that doesn't demand it, that doesn't merit it. I want to look at his life and say, what's he doing to make it happen? That's the part of the tree we can see. And that's why we're not going to talk about that today. Because what is important about why Paul is experiencing what he's experiencing is because of the root system below what we're looking at. Paul is experiencing joy not because he's just a happy guy. It's, he's experiencing joy because of what we just read in the Gospel of John. Jesus' words are the root of where Paul's joy comes from. So we can't focus on the action or the attitude. We'll get to that. We have to focus on what is informing the action or the attitude. And in Jesus' words that we just read in John 16, uh, which I kind of chronicled a little bit of this a few weeks ago, we're going to move through this narrative and parallel it with, with Philippians. In these, this kind of conversation Jesus is having with his disciples, he's talking to them on the night before his arrest and his impending crucifixion. And the disciples are petrified. They are enduring what has been the greatest life trial they have ever dealt with up until this point in their lives. I'm not saying they haven't dealt with hardship before, but this is like the, the Mac Daddy of them. They have been with Jesus for a long time, and now he is about to be taken from them, and they do not know yet, although Jesus is trying to let them know, that the very next day they are going to be hunted for their lives. And Jesus reminds them as they go about fulfilling the mission of God that they are going to face real troubles in the world. This is also one of the promises that Jesus makes us. Much like the one Paul many years later is facing in a Philippian jail cell. Remember, he's in prison for his fidelity to the very teachings we're looking at in John today. And so to deal with these troubles... Jesus gives his followers the gospel promise of joy and his peace, and he helps them to understand how they can experience it. Remember, key point, first talk, we don't just want to talk about joy. We want to get to the place where we experience it. And this is really what I want to talk about today, and this is why we're going to look at it primarily from the gospel of John. This week we examine the root. Next week we look at the tree. Because the uncommon peace and joy that Paul experiences during this trial is evidence that he tied the main thread of his life, the skyline of his heart, you might say, to a promise that Jesus gave us in John. Remember, Paul's promise in the Philippian jail cell, our promise today. It's one with roots so deep and secure that like that skyline tree, when it is believed, it allows us to withstand the massive pressures of life when they come. And remember, another key theme in this is maybe you're not dealing with struggles or trials right now. That's okay. We, you know, life is like a valley in a mountain. Some, some weeks and months are easier than others. But know that whether this is your talk today, or this is your talk in a year, or this is your talk to help somebody who's in the valley right now, this talk is relevant to you. So file it in the, the banks of your heart and use it when applicable. This really leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you today. When we speak of experiencing Jesus' peace, not just knowing, but experiencing Jesus' peace in any life trial, it's rooted in knowing how much you matter to God. This is the fundamental reason why we can persevere, because you matter to God. Paul feels this because Jesus says this. John 16, verses 27 and 33. The Father himself, speaking to the disciples, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. Nobody escapes it. We've already highlighted that. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. And while we won't get into a lot of this detail today, the world, um, it, the world has both a negative and a positive connotation in Scripture. This is kind of the negative side. It's talking about the, the things of the world that hurt and oppress. So we're not talking about the world in the good sense. We're talking about all the bad stuff now. 
And what happens here is Jesus gives us kind of a fundamental truth. We will never find true peace in this life until we believe this truth in our hearts. The peace of this promise is an interesting one, and we are observing the fruit of it in Paul's life. This is the root that informs what is happening in Paul's life. And it stems from this verse that we read in in, uh, verse 33. On the night before Jesus goes to the cross, like Paul's situation, something interesting happens. Jesus and the disciples, they're, they're about to fall on hard times. And on the eve of those hard times, Jesus leaves them with these words. He says, listen, everything I've taught you, much like the concept of love that we talked about a few weeks ago, everything I've taught you, everything I have said to you, you can hang your hat on one hook. I have given you these things so that you would know me, that you would love me, and you would experience the benefits of my peace. I have, I have helped you to believe in me and to know my Father so that you would know one of my promises to you is when the trouble comes, when you face it in this life, you will never face it alone and you will face it with my power. And so because this teaching is about finding God's peace and joy, those two things are inseparable, they lead to each other, it's crucial that we have a proper understanding of what Jesus means by peace. Most of these words, love, peace, joy, hope, they are so polluted by cultural connotation that we don't understand the true Christian root of them. And so to do this, rather than giving you, you know, Webster's Dictionary definition or some, some literal Greek term, I just want to give you a word picture of the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about here. Imagine your life is a sailboat, like a sailboat, and you are sailing on the large ocean of life. And although you might have a general understanding of the weather, and pat- weather patterns of the sea, think about that, right? We, at this stage in life, many of us have, we have families, and we've been to school, or we have life experience. So you start to understand the rhythms of the ocean. You know the waves can come up, right? You know the sea can be flat. You, you've got a lay of the land. So you understand generally the nature of life, the patterns of the sea. But there is still so much, a great deal of, of things that happen on the journey you cannot predict. You might be able to understand the, the, the way the, 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 uh, the waves move, but you can't predict when they're going to move. And some of these things cause us to not even be able to prepare for them. So one day, in this analogy, you're sunbathing on the deck of your boat of life in tranquil waters. The very next day, storm clouds roll in, and it seems like you're at the mercy of a raging ocean. You're hanging on for dear life. This is why I mean life is like an ocean. And this is a great metaphor for how life can be for us. One day, everything can be going great. The next day, not so great. In certain situations, you don't even get any notice, no advance warning. It's like one minute you're okay, and then the next you're not. You get that phone call, right? Somebody you love has passed away. Well, you go to the doctor because you got a routine cough, and you find out something's bad. Like, you get a checkup that turns out to be anything but routine. This is what I mean. The, the, the seas rage sometimes in, in moments where we can't even predict them and we're not even remotely prepared for them. And I, I use this analogy a lot because I think it's a valid one. I think one of the greatest examples, one of the greatest global examples we have of this reality can be seen in the, the recent, almost kind of past tense now to a certain degree, economic recession we all faced a few years ago when our global economy pretty much collapsed. And what's ironic to me about the seas is that uh, we have a really short-term memory with this stuff. For the most part, we have moved on as a, as a complete globe, forgetting about what life was like three or four years ago. We have forgotten that there are still lingering effects from that being felt today. But nonetheless, what happens is that collapse brought this reality home for a lot of people, some of you in this room that felt it. You have all talked to people, maybe you've even been that person, who functioned under this idea that you were promised job and life security, right? You were told, go to school, get a degree, work hard, and life is secure. You did all that, and then you realized life was not secure when things went south. Or people who were right on the verge of retiring, and they built up these secure investments, they found out that this was anything but secure. Moments like this remind us of how quickly the seas can become turbulent, (coughs) whether they're uh, physical issues or financial issues or whatever. 
And sometimes the troubles of life, they are uh, sensational like this. Sometimes they are less sensational than those examples. But they're no less a threat to our personal peace and joy. And I'll share with you a story from my son <clears throat> that happened when he was five. I, re- I distinctly remember seeing this in my kitchen five years ago. This was a peace crisis for him. He was five years old and in kindergarten. When I walked in, the, in on the middle of a conversation he was having with my wife, <clears throat> and it was pretty obvious that he was really distressed about something. And after fishing around for some information about what was happening, I learned he was worried uh, that somebody was going to make fun of him at school because my wife had packed him a <coughs> excuse me. My wife had packed him a leftover pack of um, Valentine's candy of <coughs> gummy bear candy, gummy bear treats. You guys familiar with those? You shouldn't be. That's all that I'm saying. <coughs> so, so <coughs> what happens here is I'm watching this conversation unfold. And this is my son's version of, a, of an economic collapse. And so my first thought of this is I'm looking at this, trying to understand this. Like, what is he freaking out about this for? And it became pretty clear to me that he was concerned that if he went to school with this gummy bear candy, that people were going to look at him and make fun of it. I guess he thought he should have Transformer candy or something. I don't know. G.I. Joe. But he, so he goes through this. And, and my first thought on how to handle the situation like this is, you know, anytime you see your child suffering, it hurts you. Was, I was like, I want the names and the addresses of those kindergartens, and I'll teach them a lesson about Care Bears. You know, uh, I'll show them the meaning of Care Bears. And then I thought, that's, that's not going to work because uh, you just don't get any street cred beating up kindergartners. So I told him that when he was in sixth grade, those are the kids I take care of because sixth graders are absolutely no joke. They are much, much, much uh, tougher. They're on bikes and have pegs and all kinds of crazy things, right? So, so this whole situation over this small pack of candy is rocking his world. Now, think about this, right? When we deal with crises or trial, there are many ways we can handle it. Many ways we can deal with it. And I could have tried to help my son experience Jesus' peace in his heart again in a number of ways. There was only one right way, according to the truth of Christ's promise in John, that could lead his heart to the enduring peace. I'm not talking about passive peace. Enduring peace, he's promised us during difficult times. And this is where our belief in the gospel uh, really begins to matter. It's where we can't just counsel an issue. You can't just talk about the tree. You have to counsel the root that's causing the tree to grow this way. In this case, what's happening here is, is Paul has learned to take Jesus' promises and he's learned to apply them to his heart. He's learned, he's at a place in his life, he's not perfect, believe me, there's many failures in his life. But in this instance, he is aw- acutely aware of the circumstance, but he's learned on a daily basis to apply the promises of Jesus to his heart. There, there are these meaningful opportunities that life presents us and sometimes the people we love to help them understand how to experience Jesus' peace. This is why we are a church that is concerned with disciple-making. This conversation that, that we see in Paul's life and the one I'm talking about with my son is an opportunity to disciple You don't use the textbook most of the time. You use the life situation. And the way you do that is by learning to identify the surface level issue of what a person is struggling with. And then you have to have the wisdom to get to the root of what is actually causing the joy crisis. In my son's case, he traded Jesus' peace for what he thought somebody was going to say about him because of that pack of candy. And so on the surface level, many of our trials, especially when they seem trivial, they can, they can just seem like they're non-issues. In this case, I could have just written this off as an innocent grade school concern. But the truth is that the way we react to trial reveals deep-seated issues about our hearts. It reveals what we look to in these moments of trial. It, it reveals what we find our identity in in these moments. And in this instance, what happened was my son chose to care more about what ca- classmates might say about him than what Jesus already said about him in John. This is why the promises matter. When the lie comes to your life, you need the concrete foot of Jesus to step on that with his promise. And consequently here, it robbed him of his peace. So what happens here is you and I 
get the same results on a grown-up level when we forget about how much we matter to God. So think about this. Practically speaking, here are the ways I could have counseled this. I could have said, don't worry about it, right? Who cares what people think? Because effectively what that says to him is, that doesn't matter. This is not a real crisis. Don't worry about it. That doesn't get, it, that doesn't get you to where Paul is at. I could have went the bravado route and said, listen, uh, I could have handled him the way my dad would have handled me. And my dad would have said something like, you know, when I was your age, I was so poor. And he was literally poor. No joke about that. I would have been happy to have a pack of Care Bear candies in my lunch pack because my mom had a, you know, hike five miles for tree bark. Uh, that's what she gave us. She put, she put tree bark in my, in my lunch sack, and, and that's what I ate. And remember, the, my dad grew up in Brooklyn where there was like one tree for every five miles. Like, he would have totally just tried to harden me, and that's the way I've learned to respond to most situations, right? But it's not always the right way. Effectively, what that says to somebody is do it in your own strength. I know that seems bad, but the, the truth is like you're tough. Deal with it. That's a coping mechanism. And it's a coping mechanism that disconnected, it's disconnected from Jesus. I'm not saying these are always wrong. Sometimes we do have to toughen up. Sometimes we do have to become aware of the ridiculousness of what's going on around us. But I'm telling you, if those are your root issues, this is the bottom line, which is what we're going to talk about last week. This is the, the worldview you function from. Those mechanisms don't get you to where Paul is in a prison cell, where joy is truly being challenged by a difficult circumstance. Remember, the tree is joy through false imprisonment as he's on the verge of being executed for his work of the gospel. And that's why when we endure trials, we must learn to apply Christ's gospel promises of peace and joy to our lives. So, for example, in this instance, here's the root issue. My son let a little bag of candy have a weightier say about who he was as a person in his life than God himself. And that's exactly, in a very imperfect way, I'm sure, how I tried to speak to his heart. I wanted him to know that it doesn't matter. The candy doesn't matter. The 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 potential accusations of other people don't matter. If your classmates, fun, classmates, classmates make fun of you, or if you're at this place in your life where emotional troubles are depressing you to the place where you're questioning your purpose in life, or if you wonder if you have any meaning or purpose or value in life, or whatever else I haven't mentioned here that has or is or will rob your joy, rob you of Jesus' peace, you have to at some point remind your heart of what Jesus says in verse 27, that those troubles never have the final say in your life. The accusations don't have the final say in your life. The slander against your name doesn't have the final say in life. Jesus' peace and the promise of it is what has the final say in your life. Because your life was never meant to be built on those other peripheral things. Your life was meant to be rooted in the promise of Jesus. It was supposed to be built on the promise that your heavenly father says, Listen, you are my child. This is what Jesus is talking about here. You are mine. That's what he's saying. And because you are mine, I love you no matter what. And nothing can change that. That's what you have to hear in your heart when you hear things contrary to that in your heart. And so you can eat that candy in peace or whatever your version of that is. You can live your life in peace because Paul's example here is you you can follow it no matter how bad things are. Because when you learn to rest and let God's unchanging promises be your source of peace when the seas get rough, it changes what grows out of the root system. And you find that stability. I'm not being naive here. Things don't get easier. But stability and hope and perseverance now define your life, not fear or timidity or, or being wrecked or ravaged by the situations of life. So listen to how Gary Burge, he's a pretty well-known New Testament scholar, describes the evidence of this promise in a Christian's life. He says it is essential that we keep in mind that peace and trouble in life do not negate one another. This is often how we see this. When I have peace, it's because I'm without trial. When I have trial, it's because I'm without peace. But what he's saying here, and this is true even in the little mundane things of life. You know, we we cast God to the curb when life gets difficult or work gets tough and we check out. This is what he's saying. He's saying these things do not negate each other. 
We're supposed to be consistent and persevering no matter what is going on. It is essential that we keep in mind that peace and trouble in life do not negate one another. The peace of Jesus is a condition of the heart that takes the uncertainties and struggles of this world seriously. Not denying this, we're not blowing this off, but like a seagull riding the surface of a turbulent sea is able to climb swells and drop into the valleys without being ruined by worry. The seas don't change. The way you navigate them does. And true peace like this can only be found when you live knowing your ultimate worth and value isn't in what you're going through. It isn't in what is being said. It is in the fact that God loves you and calls you his own. That is the rudder that you function from. So simply put, the first idea this morning is to take God at his word. Because Paul did. And because of it, he's believing that he matters, that there is purpose in his life, even when it seems purposeless. And he is experiencing the promise of peace and joy. This is the way Jesus wants us to live. This is the norm, the way that Jesus wants us to live. It's what Paul is experiencing. It's what he has told his disciples. And it is the promise that he gives us today. And this is the the second thing. It leads me to the second thing that I want to share with you this morning. The second thing that he says in this passage should convince us why this is all the more true. The reason you can have Jesus' peace when faced with trials is because he's already overcome them. So we know Jesus loves us. We know that we've given the peace and joy that he has to overcome trials. And then he qualifies this. He says, listen, not only do I give you my peace, not only do you see people experiencing it, but I want to tell you why you can have my peace. Because your trials, I've already defeated them. That's what he says. John 16, 32 through 33. Do you now believe Sarcasm in this. We'll touch on this in a, sec- in a second. This is Jesus showing a little wit. Do you now believe, he says, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, speaking to the disciples, each to your own home. Remember, I told you they're going to run for their lives. That's what's about to happen. You will leave me alone, he says. But his stability in life is not based on his disciples. He says, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Jesus himself says, the circumstances of life will betray me, but I will have hope because I do not find my joy in these circumstances. I find my joy in the fact that my father will not leave me when you all do. I mean, he is literally like preaching to the choir idea. My father is with me. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We don't just get like, you know, a, a lame joy promise here. We get an offensive tool to recognize the world has been overcome and its negativity and its systems. And because of that, we overcome now too. Now, this is an important promise, especially to those who are currently dealing with worldly troubles, like the disciples right here. In these verses, Jesus is forewarning them that life is about to get rough. And think about this. This is proving the point that I just made. He's gathered them. I talked to you about this a few weeks ago. He is teaching them that things are going to get bad, and they do not have time to process this. They don't get to go to their community group on Wednesday where your pastor writes some questions, and they talk about, well, so Jesus is about to be killed, and uh, I think what's going to happen is the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are going to hunt us to death. They don't have that. Jesus is saying, like, this is the reality. The seas are about to rage, and you don't really have any time to prepare for this. You have to be prepared. In the next 24 hours, I'm going to be taken and crucified. Like I said earlier, one minute, the seas of life are calm. The next minute, your world falls apart. And there's minimal warning here. And one of the most interesting aspects of this teaching is when the disciples, in a rather arrogant way, that I didn't read this today, but preceding these passages, they are kind of arrogantly telling Jesus that they've got all this stuff down. 
Just before these verses, they say things like, yeah, we get it, we've got it, you're God, you're all-powerful, you're all-knowing, uh, things are going to be tr- tough, the world is full of trials, and we've got your peace when they come, this is good, uh, amen, let's have communion, and then go to the Golden Corral and have lunch. That's where they're at right now in their sermon. But Jesus responds to this by telling them, you don't get it. That's what he's saying. He's like, do you, do you really believe this? Because he knows, and he tells them, you're going to live like you've never heard this before. In, in about 24 hours, I'm going to be arrested and crucified, and you are going to live like I have never been in your life. Like we said a few weeks ago, they're, they're hearing honey but not tasting it. And that's why Jesus says, do you now believe? This is more sarcastic than serious because he knows when the troubles come, peace is going to be the, furth- the furthest thing from their hearts, and the disciples are going to run for their lives to be scattered by the forces of the world. And perhaps more painfully, some of them are going to deny him, and they're going to act like they never knew him. There's a pretty strong lesson in this for us. We see that it is entirely possible for us to think that we believe and understand these things. We can, we can, when the seas do not rage, with kind of a false confidence, say we believe in the power of God, we trust his promises. But the truth is the real evidence of how deeply we actually believe these things is going to be validated when the trial comes. When you are persevering through the troubles of the world, when they show up at your doorstep, one of two things happens. You will persevere or you will be wrecked because of them. And what we see here is kind of a hybrid. First, the wrecking comes with the disciples, but then because of Jesus' grace, they get, up back, they get back up on their feet and perseverance begins to rule the day. It can be a sloppy process, but no, nonetheless, no matter where we begin the process when the trial begins, where we should end up is in perseverance. And so in verse 28, Jesus gives the disciples four powerful reasons for why he's able to overcome the world. And these reasons are the reason we can He doesn't just say, I can't overcome the world. He says, I'm going to tell you now why I can overcome the world and why you can believe this. He says four things, and we'll talk about them briefly. He says, I came from the Father. I entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going back to the Father. And that verse is the summary statement of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. These are declarations that he makes. This is Jesus flexing God muscle right now. And he's saying, listen to me, I am came from the, God, from the Father, I have entered this world, I'm going to leave this world, and I'm going back to the Father. This declaration shows us a few important things about who Jesus is. They give us promises to hang our hat on, and they reveal why we can trust his joy and peace and experience him. And if you want to know why Paul is experiencing this immeasurable peace, it was not in his prison cell at this point in history, but I can say that he was intimately uh, knowledgeable of who Jesus was in his gospel. And it's pretty fair to say that these ideas, these theological truths, were floating around in his mind and in his heart. And that's why he confidently gives us this book we're studying now. So I want you to put your spiritual thinking caps on for a few minutes. Because we're going to briefly walk through these four declarations, and we're going to do what I like to call a little theology, to better understand how God has overcome the problems of this world, and practically speaking, why we can too. We'll look at the four clauses. First thing Jesus says is, I've come from the Father. Now, you might recall we touched on this idea, this truth, a few weeks ago in our Valentine's Day talk, when we talked about love and its pre-existence. God has always been, so therefore love always has been, his love. And his love is very different oftentimes than the way we understand love in our world today. Pure love, true love. What Jesus is saying here is, is validating that. He's saying, listen, he's not saying I came from the Father like, you know, he taxied me to earth. What he's saying is, is I came from the Father because I am the Father. He's very boldly saying, I am God. And because I am God, this doesn't mean that I'm like him. It doesn't mean that I just know him. It means that I am him. He and I are one. This is what gets him put on the cross. And what he's saying here is he's evoking his authority to let us know where we can have peace. He's saying, Scripture teaches you guys, I've created this world. 
that it is my footstool. Colossians literally says that. It, it, as he sits on the throne, this earth is where his feet rest. And in due time, many of us believe this, but a lot don't. In due time, other passages, Philippians will talk about this. Jesus says, one day everybody's going to acknowledge this, one way or another. But for now, know that because you do acknowledge this, your troubles are on this earth. And this earth is where I rest my feet. So I am your Lord, but the Lord of them too. And so for all of eternity, he tells us, I've been reigning with my Father in heaven like that. I've always been just as my Father has been. And that's why you can trust me. But then he goes on to say, I've always been with my Father in heaven, except for one brief period in time, which is the second part of his statement. I come from the Father, and when I left the Father, I entered this world. And he gives us another belief. This is the doctrine of his incarnation. The all-knowing, all-powerful, pre-existing creator God. We throw these words around, but these words have significance. These things we speak about, who he is. This God, and Paul will talk about this too in Philippians 2, he humbles himself. He lays those things down, and he becomes a servant by becoming one of us. He lives like us, speaks like us, talks like us, suffers like one of us, ensuring the world that he would never uh, just talk to us about the troubles we go through. He's not saying, you know, I read in heaven about troubles on earth, and I want to tell you that you can have my peace. He said, I have dealt with your troubles. I've gone through them, and I have persevered through them. The troubles you face in life are not abstract to me. I have personally dealt with them and experienced them. He does this so he can speak into our life in a rather unique way because he's gone through them too. This is one of the reasons God becomes man, to be like us so he can speak to us and exhort us. The second reason he becomes man is also found in verse 28, where Jesus says, I entered the world so that I could leave it. So he comes from the Father, he enters the world, and he tells us the reason he came to the world was eventually so that he could leave it. The gospel teaches us Jesus entered the world and lived like one of us because he ultimately had to die like one of us. This is a reference to what he had to do for us on the cross, and this is where we have to introduce that nasty word, sin, where humanity commits these heinous crimes against God, and if we're going to be other, honest, we commit them against each other on a pretty regular basis. And this is so serious that Jesus says, I had to come because you couldn't fix this. I had to come to make this right. I paid the penalty for you, one you could not repay. This is why he leaves his throne in heaven, not to benefit himself in any way. He lays down godliness, Paul will tell us. He lays down that authority he bankrupts himself, Philippians literally says, so that he, we could find the riches of redemption with our Heavenly Father. He trades all of that so that we can experience it. And once he made this sacrifice for us, for humanity on the cross, here's where this starts to meet the road for us, the rubber does anyways. Once he makes this sacrifice, he defeats the power of death, he defeats the power of sin, and he fulfills God's requirements, his just requirements. He says, when this is done, my time on earth is going to be up, and that's why I've got to go. And that's where we come to the last part in this verse. When Jesus says, now I'm going back to the Father. We are on the other side of this. We're going to celebrate the fact that he went back to the Father in a month. But the, the disciples are not. And what he's saying here is, this, the doctrine of the resurrection and ascension, what we focus on now during Lent, this season, these two beliefs, they come to the forefront of the Christian life over this next month. We rely on them heavily during the season of Lent as we prepare, prepare for Easter. And they teach us that Jesus had to die for the sins of the world but he died so that he could overcome them. What Easter shows us is the grave couldn't keep him down. Nothing could keep him down. He dies so we can live. His resurrection is foreshadowing the promise of eternal life, of hope, of peace, and of joy. And what he's telling us is that those of us who are in Jesus, or those of you who are not yet in him, but want to experience this, he says, listen, you no longer have to fear the trials of life. You no longer have to fear death. You can be like Paul, 
Because like Jesus, like me, these things do not hold a power over you because they do not hold a power over me. I rest the heels of my feet on them. I empathize with you, but I rest the heels of my feet on them. And so he goes back to heaven. He ascends. Thank God he did. Because scripture teaches us right now at this very moment. You don't just have his promise. If you read the rest of Acts, what you'll learn is that he is right now interceding on our behalf. He didn't just go to heaven and forget about us. He's sitting next to God, feet propped up on this earth, praying for you, talking to his father about you, understanding your trials no longer as a slain lamb, but as the lion. He is now the risen, glorified son of God. He is God's glory working for his good in this earth, in our lives. And so what this means, here's how we wrap up. What this means is Paul's troubles, your troubles, your kids' troubles, whatever they are, no matter how bad they are, they are his footstool. The, what, the power that they once had to rob us of peace, it perished on the cross. It's what Jesus left on the cross. And that's why this talk is entitled, and we'll look at this idea for a few weeks, but God meant it for good. Because that's the root of what Paul says in Philippians. He says, I don't get all this. I don't understand all this. But I know that God has meant this for good. I know he will deliver me. It is certain. Whether it is in this life or the next. God will make good on this, even though I can't see the forest from the trees right now. That gives him hope. But God meant it for good. Because Jesus' promise says if we're paying attention, we can see purpose and find value and meaning and worth in any situation, no matter how dire it may be or how bad it hurts our feelings. There is purpose in it. And these powerful statements are why Jesus says, I've overcome the world, the troubles of the world, and you can too if you're in him. So right now, if you're here saying, I hear this, but I still feel like I can't win when it comes to the troubles of the world. If you're the person who denies this, if, if trial comes or uncertainty comes and you run from this stuff, and we all have seasons of this, do not run from it. God will relentlessly pursue you. If he brings trial to life or allows it, there is purpose for it. And whatever he wants to show you, however he wants you to experience him through that, Learn, learn. Get, it, get in his feet, pray before him. Let him work in your life because there is great hope for you when you do. In some sense, the way we respond to these things might even re- reveal the degree to which we believe or don't believe these promises. It's, it's a good thing though. Listen to me, if you've come to the conclusion today that you realize like my ability to overcome troubles and trials, like I have failed in this. I have tried. I've put on a good face in front of people, but at the end of the day, my troubles have overcome me. Be at peace because know that your ability to overcome trials is not the promise Jesus gave you. Your ability to overcome trials is based on the work that Jesus just talked about. He says, my ability is why you can overcome trials. That power comes from what Jesus has already done. You don't even have to find it. It's already been done. It's past tense. It's already happened in the world. He already came. He already defeated the troubles. This means he's already defeated your troubles. And so just like joy... The promise of this is a past tense promise. It's already in you. You've just got to figure out what is causing it to sleep. You've got to figure out how to awaken it. But to do this, you have to start by deeply believing and applying these promises in order to experience them. And be frank with God. If you, if you want to apply, but you just can't, let him know that. He already knows that. Let his strength carry you across the bridge of belief. So to corroborate this, let's look at the Apostle Paul's writings in Romans to see what believing this promise looks like from the human side. And what's most interesting about this passage is that in talking about being conquerors, he directly references these four doctrinal promises Jesus makes us here in John. He's, he's unpacking this in other places. What he says, Romans eight thirty-one through 35, it'll be behind me. What then shall we say in response to these things? He's talking about hardship, life, problems. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, 
graciously give us all things. He's given you everything you need to deal with problems. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I came, I was here, I died for your sins, and now I'm leaving. That's what he's saying right there. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Here's the question that he leaves you with. Who shall separate us? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Who shall separate you from these things? The answer here is a clear one, and I'll tell you how Jesus answers it. Can these things separate you from him? No, they cannot. You may permit them the, the, the power to do so, but he's saying, when you function under me, these things cannot take you away from me. They cannot divide you from my love. No trouble has the power to separate you from his love and peace. And that's why Paul is able to, to answer this question so confidently when he is faced with this hardship in a Philippian prison. The question you have to ask yourself right now is, do you answer that question the same way? Do you persevere or the trials of life like a wrecking ball just battering you to death? 2004, one of my favorite films. Um, any of you guys and uh, ladies seen the film Troy? Okay. So some of you watched The Kardashians, but two of you watched Troy. I'm putting a resume out. This is messed up. You have got to watch Troy. Troy, uh, you know I'm a history dork, but Troy is, is, is perhaps the best film adaptation of a segment of Homer's Iliad, you know, some of the great uh, writings of Greek mythology and history. And so there's this great scene in the opening of the movie uh, where Agamemnon, who is a crooked Greek king, he's trying to conquer the land of Thessaly with an army. He's basically a tyrant trying to take over the world. And the defending forces of Greece are all lined up ready for battle when, uh, when they evoke this ancient world way of settling disputes. In the ancient world, it was very common, uh, rather than for two armies to basically kill each other, they would often champion their best warriors. And they would say, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my best warrior, and you give me your best warrior, and they will vicariously fight for us. And the winner of each battle, uh, whoever wins, then wins. In other words, the armies get to live, but the battle has been won. And so the best example we have of this, just kind of showing good history, is what happens between David and Goliath. Here two armies are poised to fight, but two champions fight on behalf of the army. So this is an ancient world practice. And in the film, Achilles, you know, the Achilles heel, the great Greek Myrmidon warrior, he's put up, he's put up against uh, an enemy champion twice his size. I mean, he's a, it's Brad Pitt in the film. He's a scrawny, you know, muscular, but very thin and little compared to this, like, beast of a human, like a gorilla. And when you, when you watch this set up, at first you know it, it looks pretty bad. But Achilles is not just an average warrior. He is the greatest Greek warrior in, in, in history. He, in the story, he easily defeats the enemy because of his wit and his cunning and his agility. And he wins the battle for everyone on his side. He champions, defends, and frankly, redeems a whole army. Because of his fight, he gives them life. And this scene... It really depicts this idea of what Jesus does for us. We often in great and old hymns, you know, we, we talk about him as our champion, as our as a, he's a person who is who is going out in front of us on our behalf. He is truly a great warrior for us. And this is what his life, death, resurrection, and ascension do for you and me. It means that you do not fight the battle on your own. You have had a champion who has gone before you to fight it for you. He defeats the power of sin. He defeats the feelings of shame and guilt so frequently associated them. He neuters the ability of trouble, no matter how big or, or small, to defeat you. The power that we read about here is what gives Paul hope as he faces execution. And it can give you hope in no matter what you deal with. Because he has overcome. 
He has won the world and everything in it. He's fought and won the battle. And you have to see him as your champion. He's not on the horse in the back of the line. He has rode ahead of you. And he deals with what you deal with because he loves you. So today, believe this truth. This is my final charge to you. Rest in it. If you're not in Jesus, give your life to him. If you have questions about this, let us know and we'll help you figure that out. If you are facing troubles, believe this again and know you do not face them alone because your champion, he has already defeated the trial for you. And so as we close today, I ask you, when it comes to the way you experience the peace and the joy of your champion, Jesus Christ, in your life, what is Jesus saying to you and what are you going to do about it as you leave this place? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for a passage of scripture, two of them really, that begin to highlight, man, the raw, the rawness, the reality of who you are. You know, we read these passages of scripture as we begin to think about your crucifixion and to a certain degree we can see what appears to be weakness in that. But that weakness, God, gave the world the greatest strength it has ever known. And so I pray, Lord, in this season of Easter where we are reminded that the believer is victorious in your son, it is our prayer, Lord, that that power and that peace and that joy, may we rest in your strength and receive those things. May we never live this life alone. You died so that we did not have to. And so it is our prayer that we would, that we would function in your grace and in your truth and that whatever it is as we move during this time of response, whatever the lies are, we all deal with them, whatever the lies of the enemy are or of our flesh, I pray that the concrete truth of what you have said about us would reign supreme today. May your voice be the loudest in our hearts. May it dominate our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. And may they, it guide our lives as we, as we leave this place today. Use this time now, Father. Allow the power of your spirit to sift us and to sort us connect us to you in amazing ways speak to us in the name of jesus we pray amen